entering the Freedom Hut. California fires burn out of control and people are starting to look at the state and the blackouts and all the problems and say, what is going on? We'll get into that and plus the latest on the Vinman testimony in closed door session. What really happened there? Epstein suicide. Some new questions. And also, when should bosses just get out of the way? That and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to Buck Sexton Show, everybody. A lot to get to today. We'll have more on the process of uh, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff trying to do an impeachment behind closed doors where there's no transparency. Man, I have so many things I want to hit today. I'm not even sure we'll get to them all. Free college in New Mexico paid for by oil, though. Uh Oh, that could be a problem. Almost 80,000 unaccompanied minor children showed up at the border so far this, uh, I believe it's this past fiscal year. And were there Efforts to change the transcript of the phone call between President Zelensky and President Trump. Uh, we have, oh, oh, is questioning Lieutenant Colonel Vindman unpatriotic? We'll get into that and so much more. I wanted to start, though, with a question that I, I posed to our our guest yesterday, uh, Tiana, the esteemed Tiana Lowe of the Washington Examiner. She's a California native. And perhaps we'll get Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite uh, living authors, Victor Davis Hanson, to come on and join us because he has always had some very worthwhile thoughts about just what the heck is going on in California. Where is the political backlash to to problems that now are are just blaringly obvious that are just staring everyone in the face? And I wanted to start. Well, let, actually, let, let's review some of what's going on there. Uh, You right now have fires that are even threatening the Reagan Library, fires burning out of control. If the winds get bad, you could see hundreds and hundreds of homes, perhaps. Uh, Who knows how many millions and millions of dollars of damage done, people losing all their personal belongings. And of course, most importantly, uh, most urgently, the possibility of people in harm's way as these fires can burn very fast, very quickly, change direction. And you can be caught in a place where there's just no way to help. There's no one who can get to you in time. You have these fires. Then you also have the blackouts. Now, the fires and the blackouts are related. Now, keep in mind, this is not just a state. California is the fifth largest economy in the world by itself. And because of the political monoculture that exists there, it is largely now a standard bearer of unfettered liberalism, progressivism without any speed bumps or brakes put on it. Just go all in progressive, very high taxes, tremendous regulation, left wing special interest, dictating policy. Now, you have the problem of the blackouts tied to the fires because the uh, blackouts that are currently affecting almost 40 million or could affect up to 40 million people in the state of California are a result of concerns over the fires. Why do you have fires in California like this? And by the way, their fires are more devastating in recent years than they had been in the past. People want to point to climate change, but in fact, there were more fires overall 
earlier in history, if you look at the data on this. Uh, so there's not, it's not that there are more fires, that, but fires have become more devastating. Why is that? They will tell us it's because of climate change. That's just, they're just pointing to the thing that makes them happiest as an answer. Uh, it's much more likely that the natural state that many of the environmentalist groups in California insist on for the forested areas, meaning leave all the dead brush, leave all the stuff there, don't do any controlled burns, and don't do any active forestry management, just let everything pile up, that then results in much more devastating, fast-burning fires in many areas of the state. And then you also have the blackouts that have come down. Now, PG&E, which is the major utility company involved here, has, has insisted on voluntary uh, blackouts, at least voluntary from the perspective of the company, does not have to do this thing, but is doing it because they don't want liability for fires that are caused by downed power lines. Right, so when there are fires going on, they're concerned about being blamed for fires that result from a downed power line. Uh, obviously, if the fire stretches and, and hits some of the power lines or if, if winds pick up, which is a concern about the fire, there's all these different components of risk for PG and E. And so what do they do? They say, fine, we're just going to turn off the power. Now, this is something that you generally associate with a third world country. Having been in countries where in the middle of the day, all of a sudden all the lights go out, all the computers go blank, the air conditioning shuts off, if they have air conditioning. You say to yourself, well, what just happened? Oh, just, you know, a blackout. We'll be on hopefully in an hour or two. And everyone just kind of goes, okay. I don't think the people of California should get used to that. I don't think that they should accept this as the future, as the status quo. But I do wonder, when will they wake up to what's really going on here? When will they uh, recognize that, first of all, less than 10% of fires are started by down, of these major forest fires are start, uh, started by downed electrical lines. And uh, all, of this, all the judgments that are being uh, made right now by PG&E are very much affected by the hyper-regulatory environment that insists on, uh, by the way, having the power company extend their networks to housing developments in what are considered very high fire risk areas, even though the power company is like, well, that's going to be bad for us because what happens if there's a fire caused by a down power line in that high risk area? Oh, you're going to be uh, you're going to be held responsible. In fact, the state of California holds the power company responsible regardless of negligence. So if they're trying to provide power. Oh, something bad happens. Power companies responsible now. And this is part of the litigious anti-corporate attitude, even though it's a utility company, not really technically a it's not really a private corporation the same way. But some big deep pocketed corporate entity has to pay when bad things happen to people. This is another liberal idea, although sometimes it crosses party lines. California is a one party government, folks. So when we look at the exploding homeless population on the streets of California cities, when we look at the terrible water management issues where they've had stretching back for, for years now, oh, concerns about drought and what are we going to do? California as a, as a piece of land, as a piece of territory, 
should be paradise, basically. It's incredibly rich in natural resources. You have an amazingly uh, hospitable natural climate there for uh, agriculture, obviously for growing of wine up in Napa and Sonoma, uh, as well as other places in the state of California. It's uh, there's oil in California. There's natural. There's just tremendous natural resources in California. But they've been mismanaged horribly by those who are blinded by ideology. And now we get into the so so what happens? Now there's the flow from California of uh, families, especially young working families, that are saying we're done with this. We're going to Nevada. We're going to Texas. We're going to North Carolina, perhaps Tennessee. I don't know. But they're just leaving places in California because they can't take it anymore. The, the golden state is no longer golden for them. They've had enough. And now that part of your mind that thinks about the federalist system that we have and the experiments of government in all the individual states, there should be a little bit of a, of a light going off there. When will people learn the lesson? Oh, but they'll tell us California is so wealthy. Look at how wealthy it is. Look at how, how many people live there. Well, a lot of people live there because they've been born into this state that is getting, over time, increasingly poorly managed. But there are also enormous concentrations of wealth in Silicon Valley and in Hollywood. Uh, those are the two big ones that you generally think of. But remember, those are now appealing to a global marketplace. They're not just local company towns. You know, they're, they're not really responsible for the state of California. They pay high taxes, although they have armies of accountants and try to avoid taxation as much as possible. And there's a lot of ways that corporatism and big government go hand in hand, go together. But you'll notice that progressives have not yet figured out. They haven't yet connected the dots here as to why are all these things happening in this state? How is it that the same state that is home to the most wealthy uh, technology corporations in the world. Well, I mean, I guess Amazon's technically not California-based, but Google and Facebook and YouTube, well, all of them, right? YouTube's owned by Google. All these different companies that are based out there. Uh, that's the same state now that has blackouts for millions of people when there's a fire going somewhere in the state. That, that seems to be a warning sign, doesn't it? But here's the problem. Progressives can live off the so-called uh, can live off the fat of the land for a while. They can take what they can and it, it over the period of time that they are running an economy, in this case, a state economy into a ground, into the ground, uh, they will always come up with new excuses as to why this is happening. You also have in that progressive stronghold on the uh, left coast, the wealth inequality that is looking like a third world country while they're pretending to be doing so much to help working people. At some point, there may come a moment of recognition, I would hope, for the people of California and for the entire... Every time I say that, I think of the people of California with, with uh, not Donald Trump, with, with Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger uh, took on the public sector unions that are politically unbeatable in the state, and they just crushed him. And that was after they had the recall of that governor. So politics has been largely dysfunctional there because it's a one-party state. But progressives never learn the lesson, you see. That's what you really have to take away from this. They don't see cause and effect. They just come up with theories. Oh, it's climate change. Oh, it's because the rich aren't paying their fair share. It's always a slogan. 
It's never rooted in cause and effect, the reality of what's really happening day to day. What decisions are made and what are the consequences of those decisions, especially by the state government? These things take time, right? It takes time to ruin a city, as we see here in New York with Mayor de Blasio. It takes time to ruin a state. The problem with waiting until all the results are in is really twofold. One is then things are ruined. And two, they won't even take responsibility once they've destroyed the thing that you've been warning them all along they were destroying. That's really part of the lesson of mismanagement in in California, uh, in many major cities that are Democrat strongholds, whether it's Detroit or Chicago or Baltimore. It's never the fault of the people in charge. You see, there's always external factors. It's almost like the Venezuela playbook here. Well, it's not that the Maduro regime and before the Chavez regime turned a generally well-off South American country into an impoverished anarchic wasteland. It's the, you know, the Yankee Americans were the ones that ruined this country. You know, if you talk about Chicago, you talk about Baltimore, you talk about the whole state of California now. It can't be the Democrat Party. It can't be the policies of the left which make people feel good and can sound good, but in practice are disastrous, whether it's water management, forestry, dealing with fires, uh, management of utility companies, economic inequality, all these different areas where California is just a disaster. They don't learn the lesson, which is one of the reasons why we can't just allow them to play out their experiment. We have to try and come up with a counter argument, come up with an alternative that people will believe in enough to take power out of the hands of the left-wing ideologues, the central planners of progressivism, and give it to people who know what the heck they're doing and will govern based on not just the will of the people as they see it, but on the results of their policies. They can tell us all day about how terrible Trump is. Look at how the country's doing. Trump's the president. Look at how California's doing. Democrats run the whole state. I think the, uh, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, my friends. But don't expect them to learn that lesson anytime soon. That is always a ready excuse when you're talking about leftists, no matter how much they destroy what should be a great state, a great place. And that's what they're doing right now. Uh, the president's done a lot of work to strengthen the alliances that perhaps were neglected in the previous administration. And what we found is that by working with our partners and our allies throughout the world, we're able to create uh, better burden sharing and we're able to find ways to hopefully resolve some of the more difficult situations in the world without escalating them. And so, um, again, all the things that... Uh, the people were saying who were against the president last time were saying what happened that were bad if the president won haven't happened and then you know the next morning the sun rose and the next evening the sun set and America's America's gotten more and more prosperous and, uh, and I think people really like what the president's doing. The last part people would argue with, but the part right before it, and that was Jared Kushner by the way. We don't hear very much from from Jared, but America is getting more and more prosperous. Things things are going well. I like to judge a politician by the results of policies and by what happens in the aftermath of their decisions, not by what the media tells me needs to happen. You know, there's all these conversations that can be had about healthcare, about the border, about the economy, about trade with China. These are issues that matter. But instead, what you have on the left is this obsession with just trying to come up with some excuse to impeach the president when we know they're going to impeach him no matter what they find, no matter what the excuse is. It doesn't matter. It's all it's all just a ruse. It's a sham. It's a scam. Who told you? I told you. I'm not the only one. 
that the Russia collusion thing was a joke. And then it all happened. We went through this investigation. And yeah, guess what? I was right. I'm telling you again, this whole Ukraine thing is ridiculous. We already have the transcript. And now they're saying, oh, maybe maybe there were changes need to be made to the transcript. But in case you don't know really just how how worthwhile and brilliant the mainstream media is, MSNBC's Nicole Wallace, Republican administration official, by the way, under the Bush administration. She's one of those. Here's what she said about uh, Fox News, con- a Fox News conversation dealing with Alexander Vindman, who was the one who testified recently about Ukraine. Play 23. Here we have a U.S. national security official who is advising Ukraine while working inside the White House, apparently against the president's interest, and usually they spoke in English. Isn't that kind of an interesting angle on this story? I find that astounding, and you know, some people might call that espionage. Except those people aren't chicken shit like the three of you, and they know that he passed a background check that the president's daughter and son-in-law didn't. Did Joining you our conversation, I, think you said? <laughs> I don't know. Joining our conversation. That's right, Nicole. You heard that in the beginning. It was Laura Ingram and then John Yu talking on Fox News, but then Nicole Wallace comes in to say that they are chicken bleep. That's. That's the kind of astute analysis, the kind of adult conversation you can expect over at MSNBC these days. When I tell you that Trump derangement syndrome is is real, that it makes people crazy, that they can't make normal, rational decisions because of their hatred for Trump, I really mean that. It overrides other decision-making processes. The hatred of Trump becomes the primary motivation for anything and everything. Let's talk more about this congressional impeachment situation and Vindman and all the rest of it. Adam Schiff, among many things, has been trying to claim that this is a fair process by saying that Republicans are allowed to ask questions. Now, he gets to choose all the witnesses and him and himself only, which means it's not a fair process on the face. But even his claim now that Republicans can ask questions has been undermined because now he's directing witnesses not to answer questions that he doesn't want the witness to answer if they're asked by Republicans. He's not cut off one Democrat. He's not interrupted one Democrat and told a witness not to answer Democrat members' questions. But today he started telling witnesses, the witness, not to answer questions by certain Republicans. Uh, that, that reeks, and by the way, if you want to talk about a Soviet-style process, again, that might be what they do in the Soviet Union, not in the United States of America. We can't stand for this. The American people are being denied equal justice. No, I, I applaud the speaker for finding admitting it is a whole tire sham but you can't put the genie back in the bottle a due process starts at the beginning it doesn't affirm a myth sham investigation all the way through if you were in a legal term it'd be the fruit from the poisonous tree it'd be a mistrial none of this none of this information would go forward but what's most important to the american public we all have the phone call we all have the transcript we are all able to see there was no quid pro quo the money was released Ukraine did nothing and no action was taken. Where's the crime? Where's the impeachment? What's the impeachable offense? The American public sees that. We should move on and they continue to try to move a whole sham organization. It's not going to work. Well, we're not going to move on. That's for sure. The Democrats won't allow it. But let's talk about all of this. Yeah, the process. What's going on behind closed doors? What has Shifty Shift been up to? Also, uh, this 
uh, former NSC staffer Vinman and his testimony and all the brouhaha over that. We've got our friend Sean Davis with us now. He is co-founder of The Federalist. Go to thefederalist.com for his latest. Sean, thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me. All right, man, let's start with the process. What, what was this yesterday about Schiff telling people? So he, he picks the witnesses, then he has the witnesses testifying behind closed doors, and then he tells the witnesses sometimes, don't answer that. How does this work? Well, yeah, it's kind of amazing. I, I think the best analog would be to think of a criminal trial where uh, the prosecutor is also the judge and also the jury. And in this uh, example, the prosecutor can call whoever he wants, question whoever he wants, present whatever evidence he wants, but he won't allow the defense to call any witnesses, won't allow the defense to present or question evidence, and won't even allow the defense to cross-examine or ask questions of witnesses. Um, I I think calling this a a Soviet-style show trial is probably unfair to Soviet show trials. Um, And what happened yesterday was uh, Vindman, this NSC staffer, was asked, hey, who did you share all this information with? Who did you share the transcript or readout information with? Who did you leak information to? And it was at that point that Schiff told him not to answer. That, that is just a shocking uh, <coughs> obstruction of what is supposed to be a fact-finding process here. What do we know about where Nancy Pelosi is on all this? They've, they have had some vote on, or, or there's a presentation of of a a process here they, they've got a resolution where does the process stand for this impeachment inquiry whatever they're calling it i mean can you just bring us up to speed on where this is right now well it's nowhere because th- this investigation they keep referencing is non-existent and the reason i say that is because uh in the constitution the house of representatives is vested with the authority to, to conduct impeachment now a single member of Congress is not the House of Representatives. Leadership is not the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi is not the House of Representatives. Uh, The House of Representatives is clearly what it states. It's the body as a whole. And that body has never, not a single time, authorized any of these types of investigations into Trump. And so the way the process works is when you don't have the entire House delegating specific authority to a specific committee, you are left with the, the authority of those various committees and their limited jurisdictions. So intelligence, they can look at intel activities. Uh, appropriations. They can look at funding activities. Defense can look at the Defense Department. But what is happening instead is the Intel Committee, led by Adam Schiff, is is doing things that are far outside of its jurisdiction, subpoenaing people that they have no authority to subpoena. And then you have Pelosi understanding that this is a sham process, one that's not authorized, and now facing a court uh, challenge on that matter. She's trying to come and clean up the mess after the fact with this resolution. Uh, and it's put her in a real bind. She's having to rescue a, a scam-tainted process without actually authorizing a new real investigation because that in itself would prove that the previous one was invalid. So she's got a real mess on her hands now. Now, just for everybody listening, Sean worked uh, in Congress. He was an investigator. What was it, for Senator Coburn? Yes. Senator Coburn. So he knows about these processes and how this stuff all goes on. He's He's been a part of all of that. Sean, what do you expect to happen next? It seems like it seems like at some level the Democrats don't even know. All they know is they want control of it and they want to be able to change it day to day to suit their needs. But do you have some sense of what the what, how their strategy is going to play out, what the timeline is they're working with here? I'm not even sure they have a strategy at, at this point. I, I think what they were going with was was fire, aim and then ready. 
Um, they're kind of the dog that caught the car at this point. Look, the, the Mueller investigation was a failure for them. Mueller's testimony blew up in their faces, and they've been searching ever since for an excuse to have an impeachment show trial. And so when, uh, when Schiff and his team coordinated with this so-called whistleblower to cook all this up, they said, aha, well, this is it. And originally they said, oh, we're going to impeach him by November. Well, I mean, it's going to be November in two days. Um, oh, we're going to impeach him by Thanksgiving. I don't think that's happening. Oh, well, we might do it by Christmas. Uh, I think they've lost control here. They realize that there's no there there, that, that the public's not with them. And so I think at this point what you're going to see is them trying to drag the process out as long as possible so that the process itself is punishment against Trump, that they can use it as this cloud over his head heading into the election, uh, much like they used the two-year-long Mueller investigation. The, the whole purpose of that was, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and he'll get thrown out of office, but if not, uh, we're going to paralyze him for two years, and they just decided – uh, in this process here, yeah, we might not get what we actually want, but we're going to paralyze it for a year heading into the election. But it's purely political. Is there going to be an impeachment vote in the House? I, I've always felt like they're going to impeach him no matter what, just because they really want to. <laughs> it doesn't even if it's bad politics for them for the election. I still think they're going to do it because they can't help themselves. Is there a, is there a future in which you see the uh, Democrat majority House not vote to impeach the president, not present articles of, of impeachment against him on the House floor? So I'm with you. Ever since the whole Mueller thing started, I said, you know, their id is not going to allow them to not impeach him. Um, they're they're going to impeach him for any reason or no reason. But as this process has dragged along and as we've watched Pelosi refuse to even have a vote to authorize an actual impeachment investigation, um, I, I'm beginning to think they're concerned about their own politics here because there's, there's no procedural upside to them avoiding a vote, just allowing an investigation. So there must be some reason why they're not doing it. I can think of two. Either they don't have the votes at all, which I don't think is the case, or they know that making 30 or so swing district members walk the plank is political suicide for them. So if they can't even get to a vote uh, authorizing an investigation, I'm not sure anymore they are ever going to get to a vote for impeachment. And I, and I suspect uh, we may drag into 2020 and into the Democrat primaries in Iowa and New Hampshire with them still having not resolved this, which will be an absolute disaster for them, given that I think half their members in the Senate are currently running for president. Now let's talk about uh, Vinman, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, who I, I've been hearing so much about from the, the media. And it's the usual, how dare you question this military man, which reminds me of how dare you question James Comey. And then we found out that he was the worst. And how dare you question Mueller? We found out that he was basically pulled out of like the retirement home in order to pretend to be running this investigation. It really seemed like he had no idea what was going on. Uh, what, what do you make of this uh, story that Vinman now may have tried to change the transcript of the phone call between the president and Zelensky. What do you see here? What what, what should we take away from that? So I, I'll tell you, I'm amused by the theatrics and faux hysteria over any questioning of Vinman, given how we saw that these same people treated Michael Flynn, who was uh, a, a very well-decorated combat officer, three-star general, I just can't yeah, take They call him a traitor routinely, r- routinely call them. Right. A traitor. Yeah, yeah. Sally Yates, you know, said he had violated the Logan Act. I mean, come on. So these people are not serious. A huge part of their um, political operation is to shout down anyone who says or asks anything they don't like, just like Schiff did when Vinman was asked, who did you leak to yesterday? Um, uh, you know, I don't know what happened with 
him editing a transcript or not, I'll tell you, I'm skeptical of any leaks that are obviously coming from Schiff's office. The guy's a liar and a fabricator, and he can't be trusted. I will say that what concerns me most is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for Vinman's service um, and the sacrifices he made in, in the, uh, the armed services for us. But I'm extremely concerned about an active-duty uniformed military officer uh, going behind the president's back, trying to subvert his process, leaking to people, and taking part in what sure looks like an attempted coup against the commander-in-chief. I, I think that's really problematic. When you have uh, active-duty military, you have intelligence service and security service operatives inside the House attempting to criminalize uh, differing foreign policy views that the president, their commander, has. This is really, really dangerous stuff. And I worry that once you start going down this road, you can never actually go back. And in terms of what we're supposed to believe from this, uh, it seems to me that, okay, there's that leak about maybe he wanted to change the transcript. That to me is is meant to undermine what a lot of us have come away from this thinking, which is, okay, we know what was said on the call. I don't care what somebody else thinks about what was said on the call, whether they liked it or I know what was said on the call. Therefore, I don't you know, this is just more opinions of people who clearly don't like and don't agree with the president on on these issues or perhaps on any issue. Uh, so that to me is maybe just to, to get around that problem for them. But what you know, as of now, what exactly is the article of impeachment about this phone call supposed to say? What if, if there's not a crime? This is supposed to be what abuse of power. That's. I'm not even clear on what the line of attack is. Well, look, the the Washington Post, uh, I believe the day Trump was inaugurated, said his impeachment begins now. So the real crime here is that Trump beat Hillary Clinton. That has always been the crime. It's unpardonable, and they will never forgive him for it. So the last three years has been a futile uh, uh, fishing expedition for maybe something that they can pretend is the real reason. They want to get rid of Trump when in reality, the real reason is they want to get rid of him because he beat Hillary. Um, so I, I, looking at that call, of course, there's no crime in there. This is a president trying to uh, enact his own foreign policy. And I'm sorry, uh, when you go down into the chain of command in the military, it is not the job of an 05 detail to the White House to determine what is or is not allowed uh, by the president in conducting the foreign policy. There's a reason we have civilian control of the military and civilian control of government in this country, uh, and it's because the founders knew that civilians needed to be accountable to the people who elected them. So when you have uniformed military officers going in there, uh, marching into these congressional rooms and saying, you know what, this, this guy's awful. He tried to do things that I didn't agree with. That's not how this country is run. Do you think we're going to find out who the whistleblower is? Well, I think Schiff is desperate to make sure that never happens. And I'll say, look, everyone in the media knows who it is. Uh, Everyone on the Democratic side knows who it is. Uh, Leaks were coming out about this long before it happened. In fact, the whistleblower was colluding with Schiff before ever filing the complaint. And it was interesting. Schiff, before all that came out, said, oh, we've got to get him in here. We've got to get his testimony. He needs to come and testify. Most of us were like, yeah, absolutely. I want to know what this guy was up to. But as soon as it was revealed that Schiff was colluding with him secretly before the complaint was filed and that Schiff lied about it, Schiff did an immediate 180. And I'm not sure we've even heard about the guy ever since, which I find fascinating. Sean Davis, everybody. Check out thefederalist.com. They're doing great work over there. Sean, always appreciate your perspective, sir. We'll talk to you soon.
Always a pleasure. Thank you, Buck. They can't fix it. The process is broken. It's tainted. Uh, They have gone through this process where you have seen one side of the story. It's been an effort to get one side of facts and then to selectively leak those facts in order to taint the president. The idea that we want to know um, who this individual may have communicated with, that's important information. And the idea that during our hour, our counsel is asking questions and Adam Schiff tells the witness not to answer our questions is completely ridiculous. And it's, it's why this should be in public. It's not possible to look at what's going on right now and come away from it thinking anything other than this is a get Trump procedure, another get Trump procedure from Democrats. Uh, Unless you are so deluded with anti-Trump sentiment that it's no longer possible for you to be objective. And I think, unfortunately, that's a widespread problem now. I think there are a lot of people out there. Uh, who have been completely and utterly their their sanity on all issues of Trump has been taken away from them. They just can't find a way to step back and say, okay, what's really true here? What's really going on? I also believe that the American people must be getting very tired of this. The the ones who hate Trump, you know, the the 20 or 30 percent of the Democratic Party that or maybe 20 to 30 percent of voters who are Democrats, uh, they hate Trump so much that anything that is damaging for the president, it's it's like, you know, when the hamster hits the little pedal and gets the gets to eat the little pellet or whatever, you know, they just they want more. They need more. They can't stop. Uh, and that's what CNN is set up to do and MSNBC and, and New York Times and The Washington Post and many, many other places. They're all just trying to feed a a brainwashed audience more anti more a steady diet of anti-Trumpism because that's what they think their audience wants to hear and read and see. And I think that's largely true. I can't imagine that most Americans care all that much about these shenanigans. I can't imagine anybody watches Adam Schiff give these press conferences where he just has this, you know, cold look in his eyes that is, well, the president of the United States clearly violated the constitution and, and he really looks like somebody out of, you know, like American Horror Story or something. He's a creepy guy. And there's no sense of decency or warmth or anything from him. Who votes for Adam Schiff? That's what I really want to know. Well, I just look and stare at the camera and my eyes don't blink. But I want to tell you that this president is the worst human being in the history of the planet. You're like, what is this guy doing? But we in the uh, conservative media are forced to continue to cover his nonsense because otherwise the charges just go unanswered. The allegations are able to just linger out there. And that's unfair to the president. This stuff is just what a waste. What a waste of time it is for all involved, whether they realize it or not. Um, But when you've decided that government power is something that must be in the hands of the left. It's intrinsic to your sense of well-being that you have libs with a lot of power to enact what you think is good for the country. I suppose then all the rest of one's judgment is tainted. And that's what we are seeing. All right, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I don't want to dive too deep. We've already done a lot on the Vinman testimony. But this just, this caught my eye because one of the the media lines about this has been about how you can't question Lieutenant Colonel Vindman because he served. Now, 
having seen what many leftists will say about Dan Crenshaw, a wounded veteran who served in the Navy SEALs, having seen the way, as, as Sean Davis mentioned, that they treated 30 years of service from General Flynn and then just calling him a traitor because he made a phone call when he was national security advisor to a Russian ambassador. Nothing wrong with what he said on that phone call, by the way. Nothing. Uh, but they were calling him a traitor. No, no problem with that. What's Want to throw him in prison. That's how much they respected his military service. So we know there's a huge double standard with all this. But I would just note that uh, former Congressman Sean Duffy, whom I know, and I will say he's a very nice guy. He's a very nice guy. But he he took a job at CNN as a commentator. Now, I know what that's like. I worked as a CNN commentator for a couple of years, which was great. It was being behind enemy lines without anybody really there knowing. Although they figured they knew I was a little conservative. They initially hired me at CNN as a mostly a national security analyst. I was doing their uh, I did a lot of terrorism hits. I did hits on terrorism more than anything else. Right. Counterterrorism issues because of my time in CIA's CTC, the counterterrorism center as well as the NYPD Intelligence Division working on counterterrorism cases. But, you know, who needs the resume right now? You know what I'm saying? But as soon as I became an outspoken conservative during the 2016 election cycle, and especially once I was willing to support Donald Trump, then all of a sudden they changed their attitude toward me very markedly. Producers, the hosts, uh, I was a bad guy now. I wasn't just some curiosity of a you know, kind of preppy looking ex-CIA guy that could talk about these things. Now it was something else. And then that brings me to what happens when you're a conservative at CNN. You have to remember, this is your career if you're in the media, right? You're trying to build a brand. You're trying to do things that will help you grow recognition and audience over time. That's what a media career is built on. And CNN uses that, will use that to make you say things you don't really want to say. Usually it's mostly to have you back off. You know, you can't really argue with someone the way you'd want to because uh, at CNN they will shut you down. They'll tell you you're banned from the show for a while. So I wish Congressman Duffy had talked to me before going to CNN because I would have told them, uh, I would have told him that you're not going to be able to be there and get treated with respect as a conservative. Just get used to that right now. I mean, it, it is an it is a Trump-destroying organization. That is what it exists to do. And here is Sean Duffy stepping in it a little bit over at CNN, Play 24. He's an, he's a, he's an advisor to the president. Um, he is a former Ukrainian. He wants to make sure the taxpayer money goes in military aid to I'm the sorry, Ukraine. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Why does it matter, why does it matter where he was born? He, I'm sorry, he, Congressman Duffy. Why I'm, does it matter I'm, I'm where he was born? That, that came up on Fox News. He's an active-duty military member. Uh, an American he, who was awarded the Purple you know Heart. I'm a, I'm of Irish descent. Um, I still love the Irish. Um, and he has an affinity probably for his homeland. That's not my point, though, John. My point is that he gives advice to the president. He doesn't set policy. So the president has a lot of advisors who give different opinions and different views. But the president is elected by 60-plus million people to actually implement the policy. And that's exactly what he did. Ooh, that turned into quite a feeding frenzy. A dual loyalty smear is what that became in the media. Um, in the media, and and look, it was not a it was not a wise place for Congressman Duffy to go, because the storyline immediately becomes wounded veteran, which is what Lieutenant Colonel Lindman, uh, Vindman is, and 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 did fight for his country. Uh, this just turns into a session where they can club Duffy into submission 
because I think I know what he was trying to say, but he said it poorly, uh, which is that there was a policy difference that that Vindman had that manifested itself in some of the reaction to Trump's phone call. But it is not the place of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman to have a policy difference with the president to bring in the oh, he's from Ukraine thing was unwise and and uh, it was a, it was a bad move. But then I just have to note that CNN, if you're in the family at CNN, if you're a liberal at CNN and you say something really stupid, which happens at CNN like every five minutes. But if you say something that they can't even begin to defend. They'll usually put you on ice. You know, maybe somebody will you know, there'll be some public statement from CNN PR about how, oh, we, you know, we don't approve of what was said. And that person has been disciplined or they'll be off the air for a week or two. But but then they'll, then they'll bring you back. What they only do if you're a conservative, though, is if you say something dumb on TV, if you say something unwise on TV, then all the different anchors, because you're conservative, so you're disposable. To borrow from Rambo in First Blood Part 2, expendable, I think, is the way that he talked about it, right? You're expendable if you're a conservative over at CNN. And that's why Chris Cuomo, bro Cuomo, you know, trying to be, trying to bro out, you know, do his bro stuff. Bro Cuomo over at CNN trashed his colleague Duffy in a way that would never happen if Duffy were a Democrat. But as a former Republican congressman, this is what happens at your own Network 25. Former Congressman Sean Duffy this morning on CNN smeared Vindman as having allegiance to Ukraine and not to the country that Vindman literally fought and bled for the United States. Quote, I don't know that he's concerned about American policy. Getting Ukraine those weapons to beat back the Russians was and is American policy. It was passed by the House and the Senate and signed into law by the president. According to someone who knows Vindman, this is someone who never complains about his wounds, but he still walks around with some of the shrapnel in his body. This vile dual loyalty smear of an army colonel comes just days after a different smear of a different decorated war veteran, the smear by President Trump of Ambassador Bill Taylor. You see, if you disagree with even Bill Taylor, you're a bad person, you're disloyal, and you're trashing veterans. This is one of the favorite uh, liberal things to talk about. Now, Duffy, I'm not, I'm not saying Duffy didn't mess up. It was a dumb thing to say. But what I am telling you, oh, by the way, that was not bro Cuomo, obviously. My, it, was, it was wrong on my sheet here. You know, hey, we're doing a show. Sometimes we get. That was uh, Jake Tapper. And I don't want to get a really mean email telling me I'll never work in this town again. So I want to make sure I get, I get it right. You make any mistake where Tapper's concerned and. You know, you're you're in a whole bunch. Your, your your career all of a sudden will be will be threatened. He's a really really lovely fellow, uh, but Bro Cuomo over at CNN is somebody we'll talk about another time. <laughs> Jake Tapper was the one who I mean really went after Duffy. The guy works for CNN. No one. They're not giving him an effort to apologize. They're just trashing him because it's necessary right now. They don't give an opportunity to make it right. And I, I believe Cuomo also, there were other anchors as well that if, if, from what I saw in the headlines, went after Duffy for this, but Tapper just tore into him. I mean, poor guy, I'm sure Duffy's trying to make money, you know, feed his family. He's trying to, you know, think about some media opportunities. He's a, I had drinks with a guy in DC. He's a really nice dude. 
and and a good guy. And does anyone think he doesn't like the military? This is the part of this that gets me so. Does anyone think he doesn't respect the military? Of course not. Duffy's a patriot. He said he got a little caught up in something. But then they just 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 trash him. Just just smash him down. Because he's a Republican. That's the way they play the game over there. So I just want to know this is how things are done in the media environment that we're currently in. And that's why you know, people ask me, oh, did you ever go back to CNN? Yeah, I would I would totally go back and work for CNN when Jeff Zucker doesn't run it and the place is no longer crazy. There we go. When it actually tries to be doesn't even have to be conservative. It just can't be insane. You have to have to put a there's I have a hard pass on working at crazy CNN. It's always been liberal, but they used to have a little bit more sense of decorum and decency about how they treated conservatives. Now the place has just turned into a into a into a cesspool. It's grotesque. But anyway, I feel bad for I feel bad for Duffy just because he's, he's working there right now. Um, I'm sure it'll change at some point. Eventually, people will realize, I mean, maybe the CNN audience will realize that they're just being fed propaganda under the guise of journalism, which is even worse. The inspiration of leaders who are going to put people first is so important, and that's going to make people vote. Another reason why people are going to vote, because Donald Trump is manipulating the White House and has aligned himself with ISIS and Saudi Arabia. I take. I, I have to say yeah. that that is just, not true. But just that is let not me true. Say, <laughs> I am the just, most yeah. important thing that we can do Word. today is vote for civility. Vote for a president who's not going to align himself with the most dangerous foreign nations that are the reason why we uh, had 9/11. He's almost like a Bond villain who also tells you his whole master plan before he tries to kill you. Um, it's, he just says it out loud. And as you say, this is going to be he's a recruiting sergeant for ISIS, Chris, in so many ways. Tony mentioned the whole oil argument, which has obviously been a narrative for a long time. He also is someone who is an Islamophobe, which obviously helps groups like ISIS recruit disillusioned, angry young men from across the world, not just from across the Middle East. Uh, he's featured. He's been featured in ISIS recruiting videos and his Muslim ban has definitely been a recruiting ad for ISIS. So in many ways, he he helps, uh, quote, unquote, the enemy. The same week, I just want to note, you know, we just had that, oh, they're, they're, all, they're all trashing, uh, you know, Duffy. The same week that the president of the United States presides over the operation to take out Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you got people going on TV, including that was the first lady. There was the Arizona Democratic Party chairman, Rotolini, saying Trump is aligned with the Islamic State. Do you think that there'll be any somber monologue over at CNN or MSNBC about how that's such a slander. Trump has aligned himself with ISIS. Yeah, that's right. The president of the United States, this is a Democratic Party official, folks, is an ally of the group that has killed tens of thousands, rapes, mutilates, murders. That, that's a fair thing to say, right? That's a normal, rational thing to say about. So these people are out of their minds. And then some guy from The Intercept, which is really just doing doing uh, the, the bidding of hostile foreign intelligence services all the time by trying to take down different elements of the United States government. Uh, the, the This guy from The Intercept called him a recruiting sergeant for ISIS. Now, I know he that was a rhetorical flourish, but even still, yeah, Trump, Trump, the one who escalated the air campaign, killing more ISIS guys than his predecessor, going after ISIS harder, willing to take the political risk, by the way, that Obama was not, of civilian casualties, of an escalated air campaign that could have gone awry. Trump was willing to deal with that. 
ISIS gets eradicated, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. And you get people going on TV saying that Trump is an, an ISIS recruiter. Where, you know, Democratic Party official, media person, is that anyone, is that unfair? If we're going to, if we're supposed to be shocked and appalled at any criticism of Bill Taylor or Vindman, two people who both disagree with the president on Ukraine policy, fine. They're allowed to do that, by the way. I just am allowed to not care. But why is it that calling the commander in chief, uh, well, we know they call him a traitor, a liar, a, uh, a rapist, a crazy person, uh, a moron. I mean, they, there's nothing that they haven't said about Trump yet that they thought would be damaging. They, they hold back in no way whatsoever. So, but we, we are supposed to continue to play the left's game here. If you can't criticize whoever they put forward to be the anti-Trump voice of the moment. You can't criticize. If you criticize them, you're a bad person. You, I, I'm talking about criticizing even the ideas. I, by the way, I, I have no criticism of of Taylor or Vinman as people. I don't know them. I don't criticize their service to the country. I don't criticize their aspirations in their roles or, you know, what they were trying to do day to day. I just disagree with what they've done in this instance. But this is a very dishonest way of shutting down debate and discussion by saying, if you, in this case, don't like what someone is saying and that person has done something that's honorable or they've been a victim of something, or this is how the, this is how the left argues on gun control. Oh, let's put kids from the school where there was the mass shooting out there to tell the whole country what the Second Amendment really means. And if you disagree with them, you don't care about dead kids. Oh, let's put Greta Thunberg out there. And then, and then if, you, if you disagree with Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old who's telling us about how to rearrange trillions of dollars of wealth based on a vastly complicated scientific theory that nobody can really prove. Oh, you're a, ter- you're a child bat. I was called a child basher. And I will tell you, I have bashed zero, zero children. I, I did not bash any kid. That was a lie. There are news stories written about this. Oh, this guy is... Right-wing pundit, child basher. Those people are morons. Uh, and, and now we had we had the same thing with Comey. Who thinks that Comey was is beyond reproach now? Nobody. Oh, we were told that though. As soon as Trump fired him, people were people were crying in the hallways of the FBI. Oh my gosh, James Comey is not the FBI director anymore. I won't show up to my job. I can't. This is what we we're being told. I remember reading the news stories. Meanwhile, every person, as I've told you, that I know who worked with Comey is like, yeah, that guy is a self-righteous, sanctimonious weirdo. Sanctacomey is not cool. No, Mueller, the same thing. If you didn't like the Mueller investigation, you were spitting on his service in Vietnam as a Marine. That's that's what was being pushed out there by the allies of this thing. You see, we can, we can never have a fair and open discussion about what is at issue. There's always this effort to silence. There's always this effort to shut down opposing voices by using dishonest, unfair tactics. And that's what we have here once again. And, and this is now, unfortunately, this is the standard operating procedure for the left. This is not a, a one-off. It doesn't just happen occasionally. It's not once in a while. They, put, they like to put forward somebody who either has a resume that you are not, you know, a resume that is unassailable or has a victim status that if you challenge them on an issue of policy or an issue of fact, you are negating their victim status and therefore you're a bad person. You're victimizing them all over again. You're a bad person. Media never holds itself to account for this. 
And it's yet another reason why one of my favorite things about President Trump is that he just doesn't cave on this stuff. He doesn't bend the knee. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, you're right. I, I can't say anything about this person. I'm not allowed to criticize this person. Hmm. No. Trump will continue his critiques. He'll continue fighting back against those who are, first of all, in many cases attacking him personally, but even if not attacking him personally, they're opposing his policies. We all know what it's like to have Republican leadership that just takes it, just takes it. You know, oh, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to be nasty in response. So I'm just going to be quiet about this. And I think that one of the promises of the Trump administration, an implicit promise of the Trump administration is that leadership on the right would no longer sit around and say, yeah, sure, whatever, whatever you guys want to do to us, we'll just accept that as the new as the new status quo or as the continuation rather of the status quo, saying that that's not how things should go. It's not how things would go. Um, this Vindman thing, by the way, will be dropped this week because next week there'll be another witness. And then week after that, another witness. And then we get that another witness. They're really just hoping to make us say, fine, impeach him. Just make this stop. Anything to make this stop. It's just so boring. It's so worthless. But how do we get around it? Unfortunately, the only way to get around it is to get through it, to fight through it. Trump knows that. I'm just not always sure that many conservatives do these days. I start to worry about where the right really is on all of this. What makes a good manager? What makes a a good boss? You know, the number one reason, at least when I used to pay attention to these things, but I used to always see this, the number one reason that people leave their job is that they're across all industries, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, the number one reason people say, you know what, I just can't do this anymore is they cannot stand their first line manager, essentially the boss that is responsible for them. Not not the CEO boss, right? The boss that they, their supervisor, their immediate supervisor. And it makes sense. I, I remember I worked once in government and there was someone who thought that the best way to get us to do things was to just walk around the office. And, and I mean, physically, literally poke people from behind, like poke them in the back of the shoulder, say, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Just all uh, constantly. It was the most anxiety producing thing you could imagine in an office environment. I mean, it was, hey, hey, what are you doing? And you look at the person and say, um, my job? <laughs> like, I, I think I'm working on a proposal or a project or something. Oh, it turns out that people are starting to look at this more because management culture, I think, does need quite a bit of quite a bit of a look, especially in large organizations where it's very hierarchical. Um, the Wall Street Journal had a great a great piece on this today. Bosses get out of the way. And the main thing is, is how many bosses don't understand that what they are doing is at best meaningless and perhaps counterproductive but they think they're doing a great job how many how many of you know exactly what i'm talking about i i can tell you that one of the bosses that i have had in media at a previous company that i no longer work for really thought that just holding meetings was in and of itself a worthwhile endeavor that that you know if you're serious about what you're doing you got to hold the meeting 
even if we all sat there and looked at each other and thought, what is going on here? Why are we having this meetings? Uh, this meeting? And it turns out that the, the reason this is getting people to pay more attention, the reason people are paying more attention to this is that they're doing a lot of research that finds out that people are productive when the boss just leaves them alone. Because your work product is what will be judged, right? Your, your ability to do the job is what matters. But bosses that hover. I even, I even learned a new term from this, uh, from this piece today. And I just love it. I mean, because I've, look, I've had good basses, uh, passes. I like to go bass fishing. No, I've had good bosses and I've had terrible bosses. Um, I've had terrible bosses. And I can tell you that it does make a, a real difference. Management by walking around. I had never heard that term before, but it's, you know, what you, those of you who've been in an office environment know that the boss who thinks that they just got to just be around, got to hover, got to just make people anxious. That's, that's a contribution. Oh, they're helping people They're because, you know, they're, they're there in case there's a question, but also they're making sure that work is getting done. I can assure you that most of us figure out that the MBWA situation, management by walking around, the best way to deal with it is just to always make sure that you have one screen open that's work and one screen open that is your Amazon shopping list and just pay attention to where that boss is. No one's like, oh, the boss is walking around. Better actually do my job now that I wasn't doing before. Uh, if anything, I think people resent it. Resent the, the term that we used to use when I was in government all the time, and it really does convey the irritation from the whole thing was micromanagement. Micro, micro, just get into the, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you doing? Where's the, let's have a meeting. Let's have another meeting. Let's have a, oh, horrible, horrible stuff. In fact, one of the reasons I think I left government work, oh, there, there were several of them, but one of the reasons was the only way to really rise was to be in charge of other people and their work product to be a manager. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in charge of what I was doing judged by my ability to produce, to make things. And you know, now here I am in the media business as a content person, which is what I wanted to do. But I, I wanted to be a make stuff guy, not a make sure other people are making stuff guy. Now, there, there is such a thing as fantastic leadership and management in a corporate culture. I get that. There's a reason really good CEOs make a lot of money. There's a reason that people almost worship you know, Steve Jobs, even though from what I understand, he wasn't a particularly nice guy a lot of the time. Uh, but bosses, the old culture of the boss that walks around and, and holds meetings, uh, bosses are a problem. Oh, but management by walking around. Here's what it says. Even leaders who use the much ballyhooed management practice of walking around, who devote big chunks of time to observing frontline work and asking employees to identify problems and solutions, may do more harm than good. Yeah, this guy who wrote this piece writes about... Um, my Stanford colleague, Catherine Segovia, and I have recruited our students to help new managers get out of their employees' way. We arrange for student teams to attend meetings led by each boss and record the percentage of time that each leader talked, as well as counting the number of statements each leader made versus the number of questions that he or she asked. One manager, for example, was surprised to learn that he talked almost the entire time during a 15-minute meeting and asked only one question— and that his team viewed this standing meeting as a complete waste of time. This information, along with some coaching from our students, helped this new boss learn and ask more questions as people appreciate it. Uh, yeah. 
a lot of unnecessary meetings going on in American corporate culture. A lot of focus on process over outcomes. Outcomes are what matters, right? Outcomes is what brings dollars in, what sends dollars out. Outcome is what the focus should always be in a corporate environment. And I just think that I wish that there had been better management instruction, particularly I'll be the, the most of the government managers that I dealt with were were almost buffoonish in their incompetence. Most of them, not all of them. But uh, are, it's, I, mean, I remember I worked in the federal government as well as local government here in New York City um, my, for the NYPD. My NYPD uh, second line manager was a pretty good guy. My first line manager was a nightmare. A micromanaging, poke you in the shoulder. What are you doing? Why isn't this finished? Where is this thing? Nightmare. And I'm somebody who just, as a general rule, I'm just not a bend the knee kind of guy. I just don't like it when somebody is being unreasonable and uh, trying to make my life more difficult than it has to be. And so I tend to be the kind of person who, in that corporate environment, would then find ways to uh, do things my way and extend a particular digit of my left or right hand in the general direction of, of management. Um, I was not a good person at dealing with that with that micromanaging culture, and that then brings me to another part of the, this piece, the Wall Street Journal, which I just think is great. I'm trying. To, uh, let me tell you who the authors were, just to give them credit for this. Bosses, get out of your employees' way is the piece. Robert Sutton is the one who wrote it. He writes about flexing the hierarchy. Here's another one. Another hallmark of skilled leaders is that they understand that their people and work they do so well that they are masters of flexing the hierarchy to fit the situation. Uh, Lindred Greer, a management professor at the University of Michigan, finds that the best leaders don't hesitate to exert top-down control when quick decisions and immediate actions are essential, and they switch gears and flatten hierarchy when they need to solicit everyone's opinion, develop employee buy-in, and make it safe to discuss uncomfortable truths, criticize others, and generate half-baked and controversial solutions. I can tell you that a very, I dealt with a very, one of the more senior managers I dealt with down in DC working on the uh, the Hill TV project had a habit, and there were several of them, so I'm not naming names here, but had a, had a habit of, we're just going to do it because I say we're going to do it. We're going to do it this way because I say we're going to do it this way. And his approach was such that even on minor issues where it was really a a judgment call that it wasn't important, and there's no right answer, uh, but to do the because I say so routine when you're not dealing with a toddler, when you're in an office of adults, in fact, in this case, adults who kind of knew a lot more than this person about what was going on, uh, that does not do good things for outcomes or for morale, which is another part of this too, right? Management is about what the end product is of whatever the company is, whatever the service is they're providing, of course, but it's also about how do people feel in that office environment? And I've seen, I've seen it where esprit de corps is high. And when esprit de corps is high, people don't have to stay. They, have to be, they don't have to be told to stay late. They don't have to be told to get things done on time or to show up on time. Or They do it because they're proud of what's going on. I mean, my, I'll tell you this. In my Iraq office at the CIA, uh, we, had, we had esprit de corps in that office, man. I mean, we were, we were focused. We had good management. People cared about what they were doing. Um, there was a really healthy sense of competition for who was doing the most to 
to help on the policy side, on the on the you know on the supporting the warfighter side, whatever it may be. And that just reflected all the way down. We wore, you know, we we dressed up in the sense we wore suits, even though we didn't have to, because like we wore suits because we were the we we're a war office, and damn it, it was serious stuff, you know. We uh, and and that was just the the culture of that office, you know. I, I like I said, I went to the NYPD. It was a very a very different culture because I was dealing on the civilian side there. But flexing the hierarchy is also so important. Don't do the because I said so unless. Your, uh, the lack of an immediate decision is going to have real ramifications, you know, unless the lack of an immediate uh, poli- uh, immediate change in direction for the company is going to, you know, allow people to be heard and don't just shut things down or talk over them because you can. Another another big mistake that I think a lot of managers run into is they just get lazy with it. Like, all right, all right. Like, we're done when I say we're done. I don't care what other people say. Managing people is one of the most important skills you're going to have in any in any work environment. And really, life is all about managing people, your personal life, your professional life. How do you deal with other human beings? Do you bring out better things in them? Do they feel comfortable around you? Do they trust you or not? It's true of managers, true of family members, true of everybody. You know, how are you dealing with those around you? So don't do management by walking around. Don't just sort of, you know, poke people on the shoulder and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Drives them crazy. Drove me crazy. Be a good boss. We need the money, and to get the money in, we need to stop. Because Jonathan's got a vision, which I agree with, but in order to pay for that, we need the money, and to get the money in, we need to stop Brexit. 1% or 2% of GDP isn't going to make a difference. Let Maria speak. Let Maria speak. Stop Climate change is, is, you know... If you are describing Jeremy Corbyn as business as usual, then you haven't been reading the newspapers or watching the television. He was green before the Greens existed. He rode a bike. He's got an allotment. He will do both. He will bring social justice and a green revolution. So have the vision on the Greens, but vote Labour if you really want it to it's happen. It's got to be more than allotment. And let's just look at the facts. In 2017, John, there was 14... John, could you stop mansplaining? This is the I'm first day of the you, election, Adam. and Adam has and asked me could... to respond. And if you continue to mansplain, I'll have to complain. Please don't resort now. to sexism when we're trying to have a conversation well, about the facts. could you stop mansplaining? Yeah. I've asked you three times. Oh, could you stop mansplaining, please? Could you stop the mansplaining? Poor guys, like not a, that was during a TV interview. I don't even care what they're talking about Brexit, I think, or Corbyn or who cares, British politics, whatever. It's not something I really care very much about. I don't care at all, really. Uh, I care only as much as I need to care so that I can inform you all with the facts, right? But she's like, stop mansplaining. What what are you doing? What are you mansplaining again for? What What's that all about? Uh, just, I, I wanted to play it. Why? Just because I thought it was so funny. Uh, this reminds me of when the former governor of Michigan Granholm looked at me on the Bill Maher show and went, kids in cages, kids in cages, out of nowhere. Like, lady, I didn't put any kids in cages. Like, what, what are you even, t- we're not even talking about that. Just like mic drop, kids in cages. Uh, here we had a another version of just say something, say some stupid slogan to somebody you're having a political debate with and then hope that no one calls you out on it. Stop, stop your mansplaining. Uh I want to know, is it, is it mansplaining just for a man to try to explain something now? And also, it's worth noting that the Brits have a, a similar language now about some of these political issues, like social justice. Jeremy Corbyn was green before there was green. He was riding his bicycle, making sure that the CO2 that was, you know, coming out there, it's like, it's, you know, it's not like the, C, it's not like the methane coming out of cow bums, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, 
they have the same stuff going on over there that we do. You've got to stop the cow bum farts. You've got to stop it. It's important. It's got to save the planet. Uh, all of a sudden, I've started to switch over into Aldous Snow accent from, uh, what's that, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's, he's great. So, look, I was going to listen to your tape, but I decided to just go on living my life. Uh, he's the best part of that movie in many ways. I did not like Get Him to the Greek at all, though the Fallen movie I did not think that was good. You like Get Him? I don't even know if we're, allow, we're going to allow you to weigh in anymore on anything. You like that movie? That movie? Yeah, I love Get Him to the Greek. Oh, my God. It was fantastic. I love Jonah Hill. <sighs> I don't even I don't even know what to say now. A lot of Did people you at least agree like with forgetting that. Sarah of Marshall. Course. Okay. Well there we can agree on that. It's a very good movie. But why I just want to know why is producer Mark mansplaining? He's just sitting there mansplaining away. And I'm like, but I'm trying to do a radio show here, producer Mark. Why can't you stop mansplaining? I have to mansplain to you that get him to the Greek was a good movie. Apparently. I'm wondering who the audience is with on this one. Light it up in those comments. Let us know. Get him to the Greek. I thought it was depressing. It's like sad at the end. Does he have like a Cheats on his wife or something? It's bad. It mirrored real life with Russell married. Brand Wait, and what? Katy Perry. Married in real life? They were. Oh, they were. Yeah. No, no, but I meant Jonah Hill. Isn't he like cheating on his wife or something? Uh, I'm not sure. I forget now. Oh, spoilers. I am sorry about the uh, Joker spoiler that I didn't know. Somebody wrote it in. I didn't know any better. So we had a little bit of a Joker spoiler going on there. Uh, it, it is what it is. Um, but anyway, mansplaining is a thing now. Manspreading, which I try to avoid doing on the subway. Are you familiar with manspreading? You sit down on the subway? Yeah, of course. No, I never do. You don't sit on the subway? No. What are you like a germ germaphobe yes. or something? Yeah. But I don't think the I don't think the cold virus is gonna get like, you know, through your pants into your into your thighs. I'm also only on the subway for like four stops, so you're one of those, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. I have kind of a long subway ride every day. Oh yeah, ten whole minutes. Your whole commute is ten minutes. Boo-hoo. Look at this. I got it. You know, I'm a man of the people. I ride the subway. What can I tell you? Your commute is 10 minutes, yet you still show up late. <laughs> I always tell producer Mark, the show begins when the host arrives. He's like, no, technically we have studio time. Eh, I don't know. I don't know about this studio time thing that we're supposed to be discussing. But uh, yes, there are clocks and there is a time we have to do the show. But I think the show happens when Buck starts talking to the team. All right, so we've been talking about the deep state efforts to subvert this president for a long time. Um, but there yeah. is a lot more information that we need to get, and there's more analysis that we need to know, especially as we're going into an election year. There's a fantastic new book out from investigative journalist and author Lee Smith, The Plot Against the President, The True Story of How Congressman Devin Nunes Uncovered the Biggest Political Scandal in U.S. History. Lee joins us now. Lee, thanks so much, man. And congrats. I see the president tweeted about how great your book is. Yes, it was very exciting. The president tweeted about the book. Uh, it's been a number one bestseller on Amazon, uh, number one, and number one on Barnes & Noble. So it's very, very exciting. And it's, you know, it's testament to everyone understands the historic importance of the work that Congressman Nunes and his team did investigating the FBI investigators. Now, we've had a lot of news coverage i've talked to people i can't even i couldn't even begin to count the hours and the no. days we've spent on this russia collusion 
hoax. Right. There have been some good books written about it. My friend Dan Bongino has a book about it. I mean, what what are you right. focusing on in the plot against the president? And what do people need to know that they may not already know? Right. Well, I, I wanted to tell a um, I wanted to tell the story, explain what happened through the perspective of Congressman Nunes and his team. Some of them, uh, some of their names that haven't really been reported that much before, like one of his lead investigators, a gentleman named Kashyap Patel, who's a very fascinating character. And as the congressman, uh, the congressman said, and I recorded in the book, without cash, they wouldn't be able to, they would not have been able to do all the things they got done. And it's remarkable what I found reporting the book uh, with them, speaking extensively with the congressman, with Mr. Patel, with Mr. Jack Langer, who's Congressman Nunez's communications director, <clears throat> these guys were standing in the middle of uh, of mayhem, and they were actually the only thing for a while between between uh, between Trump and impeachment. They were the ones who they were the only ones who were running an offense. This was while Jeff Sessions was the Attorney General, and he had recused himself. So had Congressman Nunes and his guys not found stuff, not requested documents, not asked for different things, not made their case on TV, uh, we might be in a very different situation right now where uh, where the where these deep state operatives might have actually taken down the president. What kind of. Things did they find out, uh, you know, in that you said they, they were able to go on offense and not just allow right. the Democrat anti-Trump coup to play out. Right. Uh, what were some of the, the big eureka moments that they had? Well, the first thing that they found <clears throat> was that the Clinton uh, campaign had paid for the dossier. That was the that was the first big thing they found out. Another thing that they found out, um, <clears throat> another thing they found out was how uh Assistant Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr, who had no business participating in this investigation, was actually not only a part of the investigation, the FBI's investigation, he was also former British spy Christopher Steele's back channel to the FBI. After Steele had been fired by the Bureau for speaking to the press, Bruce Orr, whose wife Nellie worked for Fusion GPS, was the back channel to the FBI. So they they found that. They also got, uh, they were also the ones, and that was the, uh, the inspector general who located the texts between uh, FBI agent Peter Strzok and his girlfriend, FBI lawyer Lisa Page. Um, that was the inspector general who found that, and then the uh, special counsel Robert Mueller <coughs> reassigned Strzok. But it was Nunes and his guys who found out what had been going on, and they requested, they demanded these documents, these texts, uh, which were eventually, after many long and arduous fights, delivered uh, <clears throat> delivered to the Hill. So, I mean, they really, when you look at what we know about the Russia investigations, the abuses and likely crimes committed during the FBI's investigation of Donald Trump, it was they who found it. The most important thing, of course, they found was the fact that the Clinton campaign's opposition research was the centerpiece uh, in the FBI's portfolio of evidence to obtain a, a warrant to spy on Trump campaign advisor Carter Page, which, of course, opened up the communications for the entire Trump team. Basically, one of the important cases that my book makes 
is that what happened here is we often forget who was the primary beneficiary of the FBI spying on the Trump campaign. They weren't just spying to amuse themselves and to torture Trump and his advisors. The primary beneficiary of the FBI's work, the FBI's operation, anti-Trump operation, was the Hillary Clinton campaign. Now, you mentioned some of the abuses uh, and possible illegality. What are the biggest abuses uh, that you get into in the book that we we know happened? uh, And what are some of the ones that you think, uh, you know, the the evidence points toward happened, but we need to find out more about? Yeah. uh, One of the things we need to find out more about, and I I cite certain documents in my my book that I acquired. I think one of the things we need to find out is... um, well, the case I make is that Christopher Steele did not write, or he was certainly anything but the primary author of the dossier named after him. Uh, one of the things that one of the things that I found is uh, there is a they were actually doing opposition research, investigating the Trump team's possible ties to organized crime. <clears throat> I have a document dated May twentieth, two thousand sixteen, and that shows that's what they were doing: Fusion GPS investigating the Trump team's ties to organized crime. Within a month, when they say they bring on Christopher Steele, the first Steele report that, uh, that is written is June 20th. At that point, there is a profound transformation. It goes from an opposition research regarding Trump's ties to or alleged ties to organized crime to Trump's alleged ties to a foreign power. This lays the groundwork for a counterintelligence investigation. So one of the questions that we need to ask is not when the FBI got the dossier, not when they started looking, as you you know, Buck, there's a lot of controversy whether they got it in July or whether they got it in September, as they say for the cover story. The question is whether or not the FBI wrote the dossier or directed the dossier so that it would help them obtain a surveillance warrant, uh, a spy warrant on Carter Page. That's an enormous question that comes out of this. Ah, so so you think that there's the possibility that, you know, because what we've been led to believe, at least to this point, is that the dossier was taken in good faith by the FBI and then given to the FISA court. What you're saying is, what if the FBI was going back through Christopher Steele. We already established Bruce Orr, DOJ, talking to Steele and saying, get this, get this, and an active participant in that dossier process and then turned around and acted like it was just this external intelligence source that they had in order to get FISA warrants. Is that, is that, am I on target? The evidence in my book points to that. And that's certainly a question that we need to have that we need to have very solid answers about. But again, if you, if you, I mean, Fusion GPS, the researcher Nellie Orr made these claims. They were doing opposition research into Trump's ties to organized crime. That Steele dossier has nothing to do with Russian organized crime. That has to do with the Trump team's ties, alleged, the Trump team's alleged ties to a foreign power. That's a, counter-intel- that's a counterintelligence matter. So these are two very different things. And the idea, someone showed them how to do it showed them what they needed to write, what they needed to claim in order to push toward a Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Act warrant to, to monitor the communications of Trump advisor Carter Page. This is an enormous issue, and this is one of the, uh, this is one of the main takeaways from my, from my book. Now, 
We're speaking to uh, Lee Smith, author of The Plot Against the President, the true story of how Congressman Devin Nunes uncovered the biggest political scandal in U.S. history. Lee, uh, where, you know, the plot is not over yet, right? This this yeah. story has not ended yet. Where do you see this going? And what else do you want to focus on and find out about? Right. Well, I, I mean, when you look at what the dossier is and what we've been going through for three years, and what we see right now with the uh, with the House Democrats pushing for impeachment. I mean, I mean, it's it's a terrible thing that happened. The Clinton campaign injected a conspiracy theory into the American public sphere. It's almost as though it's almost as though the Clintons, Hillary Clinton, cursed America because they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. She decided she would inject the conspiracy theory and leave it there. And now, at the very least, our elite have gone mad. You can't help but turn on CNN or read the pages of the Washington Post or see House Democrats like a bizarre, uh, like a bizarre cult, like a bunch of obscurantists going on. First, it's Trump and Russia, and now it's Trump and Ukraine. But for Nancy Pelosi, for the high priestess Nancy Pelosi, it's the same thing. All, reads, all roads lead to Vladimir Putin. It's madness. Do I think Trump will get impeached? This is what I hear from much more, inform, much more informed sources. The real lasting damage, however, done by the dossier and done by the Russia operation is not only to American institutions like the FBI, the DOJ, likely the CIA and the U.S. press, but it's to America as a whole, the public sphere, the way we speak with each other, the way we conduct our politics, the way we live next to each other and get along with each other. This thing has driven the country mad. My book is an effort to get to the bottom of what happened, to try to clarify some points so that someday in the hope, the lunacy that was kicked off by the FBI's Russia investigation will come to an end and we can go back to normal politics, have our debates, our our partisan debates between Republican and Democrat, and we can do our regular politics. That's not where we are as a country right now. As much as President Trump is, is, is doing and as much as he's succeeded, <clears throat> we are not in a healthy place right now. The book is The Plot Against the President, author Lee Smith. Lee, great work, man. Congrats to you so Thanks. far. Thank you, Buck. Thanks, and, uh, very con- Thanks very kindly. And please uh, come back and tell us when you get more, all right? I look forward to it. Thanks again for inviting me on to talk. All right. Take care. Oh, and we are back here in the Freedom Hut with the man himself. My fellow The First host, Mr. Jesse Kelly, joins in on this action now. Jesse Kelly, everybody. Thanks, Jesse. What's going on? I prefer to call myself the legend, Buck, but I mean, if you, whatever, the man works, I guess. I think we could do that. I think we could start just to refer to him as the legend, Jesse Kelly. That would that would work. Uh, what's what's on the Jesse Kelly radar right now? I mean, I know you got your show coming up. What are you going to be talking about? What's What's top of mind? Well, um, we're going to go over this Vindman thing today uh, and just exactly what that means. It, it, it drives me crazy when they do this, Buck, and I know you've seen this before. I know you've actually personally experienced this before, is when they take uh, anybody, a veteran, a child, or anybody who's carrying their approved message, and then all of a sudden act like they actually care about that person's thing. You know what I mean? Nobody, nobody who praised Vindman yesterday gave a crap about Vindman or his rank or his purple <laughs> nope. heart or anything. He was nope. saying the approved message, 
to now all of a sudden, well, you can't criticize him. He's a veteran. That's funny. The left never obeys those rules for me. They never obey those rules for you. I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I was when I remember when I was in the CIA, the left would trash the intelligence community all the time. Hmm. I mean, when the Bush administration was in charge, intel community would just get uh, the worst of the worst from all the major media outlets. But in the era of Trump, when there are some intel people that obviously hate Trump, it's, oh, how dare you? These these aren't bureaucrats. These are honorable public <laughs> servants, sir. <laughs> it's so classic. I love it. It's so transparent. And I mean, they do this all the time. This is just example number 1,000 of it. You remember, it was just a few weeks ago, we were all going to die in 12 years because a 16-year-old girl said we were. And just because she wants to destroy the country's economy and your way of life, that doesn't mean you have the right to criticize her. She's just a child. Did you get called a child basher? Because I got called in, in media publications a child basher. I didn't even criticize her. I criticized the stupid adults who listened to her. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! They called me every name in the book, and I, I did the same thing you did. I didn't criticize her just because she's a sixteen-year-old girl. I didn't listen to sixteen-year-old girls when I was sixteen, let alone now. But it's just all the people acting like she's some kind of Nobel Peace Prize winner. That shot up to go back across the Atlantic. There were there were professional journalists who were expressing their disappointment that I think it was the the uh, I forget if it was the president, the prime minister of Eritrea got it for helping to end the conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia or something like that. Or maybe it was the president of Ethiopia. I forget. One of those two countries. They've been in conflict a long time. Point being, that's real stuff. But that individual got the Nobel Peace Prize and not 16-year-old Thunberg. And there were journalists who at least theoretically make a living from knowing about things who were like, what an injustice. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, we can all put that to bed now, right? Though, Buck, I mean, that, that concept, that thought that journalists make a living by knowing things. Journalists today make a living by creating, completely manufacturing outrage from thin air. And that's that's what they do. You have, you wake up that morning, you work for this jerkwater publication. Okay, what anti-Trump piece are you writing today? Oh, well, there's nothing in the news. I better just invent something. And then the next guy will write something about the same thing, and on and on it goes. And that's why we've had three years of fake crap. Now, Jesse, if I had to, if I had to get an answer from you on this, uh, which is worse, MSNBC or CNN? Uh, you know what? You know what's worse, and it's actually neither of their fault. I would say CNN is worse, but only because of this, Buck. There was a time in this country. Now, I would argue with, we've never been there with with these major networks. There was a time in this country where CNN was thought of to be the middle of the road. You know, you had Fox, who's thought to be right. You have MSNBC, who's, who's always thought to be left. And neither of those companies have really made any apologies for that. But then, you know, CNN is the one down the middle. And so that's what's in every airport and everything else. CNN is way left of MSNBC anymore. And I mean, way left. They're, they're slight in digital form. Yeah, I think that they've turned into a hate Trump network specifically. I think it's personal from Jeff Zucker on down. I think that he has a. I think that the mandate from Zucker is we're we're gonna we're gonna stop Trump. We're gonna end the Trump presidency. There's no question about it. I mean, they don't realize how much they actually aid the Trump presidency. If they could, if they could set aside that hate for a minute and actually watch to have these compilation videos that Trump puts out online that everybody loves and they're cheering and his base loves, they contain segments from CNN. They're not, they're not hurting Trump. They're writing his campaign material for him. 
I think it's true. Where can folks go to uh, watch and see Jesse Kelly? Oh, that's right. The same place they can see the first, <laughs> which is what I'm doing too, which is channel 248 on Pluto TV. Jesse, one last question. We've got about a minute left. Is the first the single greatest new platform in conservative media and perhaps of all time? It's just early stage. I think the answer is yes. Well, there's no question. I mean, it's you and I on there, Buck. Of course, it's the greatest of all time. It's not the greatest new. It's the greatest now, and it'll be the greatest for the end until the end of time. Fact check, 100% pure awesome. You have the Buck Sexton Show, the Jesse Kelly Show. There is no fat on this steak. It is all just deliciousness. Be good, my brother. All right, Jesse. Thanks so much, man. Guys, check out Jesse Kelly on the first Channel 248, where some of you are watching this now. Also, if you're listening on uh, radio down at KPRC Houston, I think he's on 7 Eastern. So, yeah, my man Jesse Kelly. We like to just get a Jesse, a Jesse, you know, pop by, stop in, whatever, whatever we can. Um, don't tell him I said this. He's one of the most talented guys in the game these days. So, but don't his, his ego's big enough. Trust me. Let's talk about some crazy Democrat ideas, shall we? We didn't get to any of that today. I'm always discussing policy here on the show, and I feel like today we we skipped past policy. What is the worst idea that a Democrat has put forward in the last 24 hours? Or what is the most buffoonish policy mistake that they have made? That's usually a tough question. There's a lot of entrance into that race. There's a lot of different directions you could go. And by the way, is this weekend the marathon here in New York? It is, right? Oh, anyway, I might, go, I might go check that out. It's fun to be the guy who, and I was going to talk policy and I'm talking about the marathon, but it's fun to go stand by the the finish line or like about a mile from the finish line. Yeah, it is this weekend. Yeah, that's what I thought. Stand by a mile from the finish line because people sometimes will wear their name on their shirt and then you can just be like, that's right, dude, keep it running, keep it going. You just yell at everybody else. You just cheer people on. It's a lot of fun, especially when you see the guys who, are really like it looks like guys and gals look like they might they they might fall over at any moment. You're like, come on, dig deep, dig. You don't even know these people. You just yell at them. It's great. It's great energy. I love it. And then there's the amazing and also slightly depressing feat of watching the truly elite runners who are on their 25th mile, or if you want to watch the finish line, and they're running 26 miles faster than you or anyone you know could run one mile, or in fact, than most people could run a hundred yards. Yeah. That's something. You see those guys and gals just flying past you. It's pretty amazing. All right, back to policy. I just got excited because I remember the marathon was this weekend. We have, oh, here we go. How do you pay? Mayor Pete, he's supposed to be the serious uh, sober-minded one, right? He's not, not one of these crazy radicals. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He was in the military. How crazy could he possibly be? Well, as I discussed with you yesterday, a nonpartisan analysis of Medicare for All makes it clear that they simply don't have the money to pay for Medicare for All. And the only ways to pay for it would involve massive tax increases. I mean, mind-blowing tax increases on everybody, not just on the rich. The rich don't have enough money to pay for this. So, how does Mayor Pete deal with that reality? Well, he says that, uh, oh, let's let the mayor... Have his say. 17, please. 
So the vast majority of the cost of my plan can be covered by rolling back these unnecessary Trump corporate tax cuts that went mainly to the wealthy. Uh, that'll cover all but about $100 billion of, uh, of our plan. You might say $100 billion sounds like a lot, and you're right. But we have a plan to cover that part, too. Uh, that's where our prescription drug plan comes in. So i got a plan to make sure that prescription drugs become more affordable in this country. A big part of that is allowing the federal government and Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And independent estimates of these kinds of policies suggest that uh, we should be able to raise probably two or three hundred billion, actually, uh, uh, in savings to the Treasury by moving in that direction over the next decade. Uh, so we're talking about something that uh, uh, not only makes sense for American consumers, that, that we have a savings individually, uh, but also saves money for the taxpayer as a whole. And some of those savings can be applied to carry the uh, part of the cost of Medicare for all. Who- this is just unserious. I mean, there's just no way that this is true. None of this can none of this can work. Medicare for all. If you're going to if you're going to take the existing Medicare program, which is not even as rich in benefits and uh, and all the rest of it as what Bernie Sanders, for example, and Elizabeth Warren are suggesting we adopt. But you're going to save now. Now it's not just we're going to pay for it. We're going to save the Treasury money. Come on, folks. At what point is it just incumbent upon voters to not be dumb? The government's not going to they're going to give a massive expansion of the single part of the federal budget that is the most problematic for spending us into oblivion. Medicare, that's the single that's the one thing that we cannot continue at our current rate without major financial consequences, negative consequences in the future. We're going to take that one thing. We're going to make it much bigger. And we're going to save money. Keep saying it. This is the this is the jelly donuts that are free that you can eat as much as you want. You'll never run out and will never make you fat. Do those jelly donuts exist, everybody? If I told you that I could give you a dozen jelly donuts, by the way, do we producer Mark? Are we are we jelly donut in this place or are we are we French cruller? Are we Boston cream? What is in fact? I'm a chocolate guy. Just chocolate straight through. Yeah, I'm a chocolate glaze, maybe with a little chocolate cream on top. Maybe a chocolate stuffed. Respect. Acceptable answers. Yeah. Specifically Krispy Kreme chocolate cake donut. Those are... The best donut you can get, is it from Dunkin' Donuts or is it, in fact, from uh, that place in Canada that I can't remember what it's called? Tim Hortons? Yeah. I've never had a Tim Hortons. Because you're an American. Yeah. Because he loves America. Okay, but so the jelly donuts that you're eating, guess what? There are calories, they cost money, and they're not endless. The, and you and you know that without me having to explain that to you. It's like if I presented you with my endless jelly donuts that cost you nothing and that won't make you fat, you'd say, Buck, come on. That is the intellectual equivalent of what is going on here with Medicare for all. You're going to have better care. Everyone's going to have care. No shortages. No rationing. And it's going to save the government money. And it's going to save you money. Who believes this? Who who, who, what, what? Archimedes, sword in the stone. Uh, this is just, I'm sorry, man. It's not going to, this dog just won't hunt. I just like to say that. This dog just won't hunt. Say it just like that, too. Oh, and, and in case that wasn't enough for you to have to accept, that, that, that already, that's, that's, whoa, that's way beyond what I think is reasonable or rational. What about... Uh, providing health insurance to illegal immigrants. Remember, we've been told this stuff that's not true about Medicare for all, but what about adding illegal aliens 
into the Medicare for all situation. So now illegal. By the way, those of you that have Medicare, you've been paying your whole life. You know, it's this promise the government made to you taking your money, taking money from your paychecks all the time. They're going to provide Medicare for you later. Um, now illegal aliens just going to get they're just going to get that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Illegal aliens that haven't been paying into that and haven't been filing taxes. They're not going to get Medicare for all from Democrats. I don't think so. Play 18, please. In our vision, nobody is uninsured. We make sure that you can't fall through the cracks. We'll even retroactively enroll people onto this Medicare for all who want it plan if they had been without insurance. Uh, the, the idea for me is the most important thing is making sure you get insured. It's not uh, making sure that the government's doing the insuring. I, I think that the public option can can do a better job. Um, but the, the most important thing is that one way or the other, you get coverage. And in our plan, everybody does. They're not even talking about insurance. That's a mis... Medicare for all, misnomer. Not an accurate description of what is happening, what is going on. But health insurance is not what we're discussing here. This is just health. This is subsidized health care. This is the government with a taxpayer-funded monopoly on the decision-making about health care for every individual of the 320 million individuals in the United States. That's what this is. It's not, it's not, it's not insurance. There's no, there's no risk pool. There's no, you know, you're, you're old, you're young, you're this, you're that, you, you, know, you pay for this, you get this. No, it's just everyone get, everyone's going to get the same. Everyone's going to get whatever the government tells them they get. And that's going to include uh, illegal aliens. I would want to ask Mayor Pete, what about an illegal alien who arrived yesterday? What about an illegal alien who shows up next week? We still have problems at the border right now. We still have illegal crossings happening. They're going to get. So now America's giving away not just free health care, but the same level of health care insurance, uh, health care rather, uh, to people that break our law and come here from anywhere around the world. This is crazy. This would have been understood to be crazy by the Democratic Party even as recently as, let's say, five or ten years ago. And yet you'll see no drop in support among Democrats really for the candidates that are saying this stuff, even though it should be recognizably well outside of what anyone would think is mainstream political thought. But it's not, now this is Democrat Party thought. My friends, they're going socialist. Democratic Party is a socialist party now. They, they can fight that definition as much as they want. They are a party of big government and central planning and redistribution of wealth. They are devoted to socialism. And in many ways, their social justice approach is meant to be a rearranging of power among different groups. So they're redistributing money and they're redistributing power. That's what they think that they should be doing, all based on the whims of a central committee, if you will, the, the elites, the governing apparatus that makes all these decisions. This is very, uh, very troubling stuff. But you know, Mayor Pete's supposed to be this, the, the sane, the reasonable, the smart one. And he's all in a Medicare for all. And his Medicare for all plan is just fantasy land stuff. It, it cannot work the way he says it's going to work. It is unserious to say that it will do the things that he says it's going to do. But no one's gonna. No one's gonna hit him on this one. They're just gonna let it go. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to eleven.
It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call. All right. Let's see what we got in the Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to email. Uh, today we'll get into some of the Facebook. I feel like we've been favoring the email. You've got mail from back in the day. All right, let's get to this. Darby. It's a cool name. Listen to Kamala Harris say that she isn't doing well because America isn't ready for a woman of color uh, to be president is ridiculous. Uh, my ex-wife is black and she's far more successful than I am for one very simple reason. She worked her tail off. That's it. Your analysis is 100% correct that we as a country do not tolerate any of the bigoted behaviors the left constantly accuses of us of. If sexism, racism, or any other ism is your excuse for not succeeding, you weren't going to succeed anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just so easy for people to find some reason why things haven't gone exactly the way they wanted to because of an immutable characteristic beyond their control. When I just don't think that I'm not saying that doesn't happen in America. I think that it happens far less frequently than uh, we are told by the media. Let's see here. Robert writes, libs are jealous of Trump. He was the king uh, of what? Married and surrounded by hot women. He's rich. He's all he's got awesome kids. He's brutally honest. He, yeah, basically, this guy's saying that he's awesome. Libs hate Trump because Trump is so awesome. Well, I, I like where your heads. I like where your heads at on that one. Uh, let's see here, Chris. Buck, love the show. I hear you when you say the orange Adonis failed to deliver on his promise of a beautiful wall. That said, nobody could have fully anticipated the deranged antics of the Democrats. If a mayor comes in and promises to reform the police and the entire establishment fights him at any cost and uses corrupt judges to thwart his efforts, did he fail or did the opposition prevent him uh, using a perversion of the law and accepted norms. Yeah, the wall is stunted, but he's working with the bounds of the law. Unless he wanted to pull an Obama, you have to judge his efforts in that light. You're being a little too literal and cute on this issue. Chris, buddy, why wasn't there a focus on getting the wall done when Trump had a majority in the Congress? Where, where was the wall then? Where was immigration action? First two years. Um, I Look, I'm not saying that Trump doesn't have all those problems you laid out. I think he, I talk about how he has all those issues, but he kind of knew he would, right? Um, got the tax cuts done. Glad we got those tax cuts. The most classic GOP maneuver of all time. I'm not saying it's not good, but it's not, not a game changer. You know why? Because Democrats come in and say, okay, now we're going to raise taxes. There we go. It was nice while it lasted. A wall would be forever. And we don't have the wall. And we were promised wall. We were not promised, oh, it's really hard to get a wall. Uh, here we go. Kyle writes, hey, Buck, saw the snap about Belgians. I had one. Smartest, toughest dog I ever owned. Not an easy dog to own. Yeah, that's what I was saying. She destroyed every six-sided cage we bought sheared off lower canines pulling a cage door through the smaller opening so she could get out of one she scaled a six-foot privacy fence this is a belgian malinois folks uh and pulled up pulled it apart chewed through another wooden fence 
She had storm anxiety and frankly thought she was human, but was great with kids and dogs. They have a huge prey drive, so it cannot be an apartment dog, but they are a great breed. No, Kyle, that's well in line with what I've read about Belgian Malinois. Amazing companions, uh, incredibly loyal, incredibly smart, fierce, and I think they're beautiful dogs too, but not meant to be in like a studio apartment, you know, where you have like a little bed in the corner for it and no work for it to do throughout the day. No, it's not a lot. It's definitely not a lap dog. I think I might have to get a lap dog. That'd be kind of fun. Uh, Brandy writes, thanks for reinforcing the advertisement on owning such a high breed, uh, high drive breed like the Malinois or Dutch Shepherd. Malinois and Dutch Shepherd, by the way, different type, but they look very, it's for a lay person like me who's not, you know, hasn't spent a lot of time with those two breeds. They look a little similar. Uh, they're different, but they're, it's easy to get them confused. And they all, they both also look a little bit like a German Shepherd. Uh, some differences in the body and the, and the coat colors. Um, anyway, Brandy writes, I try to save rescue so many Malinois and Dutchies that people discard because they thought they were cool and fine. They cannot handle the breed. Guys, the the dog breed, uh, you know, I grew up with dogs. Um, the dog breed really matters. And if you're going to get it, if you're in the city, get a city dog. If you want a lazy snuggle dog, get a dog that likes to just lie around and have its belly rubbed. If you want an animal that is going to protect your home, is going to, you know, be a working dog in some capacity, you know, and, and you were a, a no dog handling, maybe think about getting a Malinois, but do not. Just be like, oh, they look cool, and they, you know, track down Baghdadi, so I want to get a Belgian Malinois. Not a good idea. Um, anyway, Seth, Buck, love the podcast. Uh, as a retired sergeant from the Army, this drives me crazy. That guy uh, was out of step. He looks confused. Um, Seth is saying he did not like the testimony of Vinman. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, man, for writing. I appreciate it. And, uh, team, that's going to be it for the show today. I hope you have thought it was as fantastic as I do. I'm going to keep asking you, please tell somebody in your life. If you're bored, if you've got nothing else to say, you're sitting across from someone at dinner, be like, hey, have you tried the Buck Sexton show? Listen to the podcast. be a huge help if everybody listening to this did that. And uh, with that, I hope you've enjoyed the audio. Or if you're listening or if you're watching on Pluto, Channel 248, the first, thank you, Shields High.